a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show brought to you by Firesteel.com and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. It is uh, time to check in as we do each week with my friend Eric Peters from EPAutos.com. Greetings, my fellow wrong thinker. How are you today? I'm as wrong thinkful as ever, and no face diaper has yet uh, to uh, attach itself to my face like the alien creature in the alien movies. I know we joke around about this, Eric, but um, from, from my perspective, it is getting more and more difficult. The, the pressure, and I mean the, the social pressure to put on the face diaper, is so yeah. intense that, uh, you know, it used to be you'd go to the store and you'd see, you know, probably half, maybe 75% of people mm-hmm. wearing one. It's it's about 99% these days. Yeah, also in my area, and it brings up a very interesting issue, something that's been happening now for probably 20 years and perhaps even longer, which is that the government has been offloading a lot of its enforcement and dirty work to the private sector. You remember after 9-11, uh, when we found out about all these weird kind of inscrutable contractors that were uh, torturing people on behalf of the U.S. government and were maintaining these snatch-and-grab operations and knocked enabling people and so on. Well, essentially that principle has been scaled up now, and rather than pass a formal law, uh, which involves accountability to the voters and due process and, and court challenges, what they've done is get corporations and the private sector to enforce these guidelines as they're styled and making it virtually impossible for anybody uh, to function anymore without putting on the face diaper since most employers seem to be requiring it and most places where you would go to get your food and so on are also requiring it. So unless you're one of the handful of holdouts who's lucky enough to be self-employed and has some way to get around the, uh, the, the diapering at the stores, you're practically forced to put the filthy thing on. Yeah, and and the the vehemence with which uh, uh, ostracizing and and punishing people for not being in compliance, uh, that seems to be ramping up as well. People feel very comfortable with going out and confronting people and and getting in people's faces, you know, not notwithstanding social distancing to remind them just how wrong they are for not towing the line. Very disturbing. It's extremely disturbing, and it also serves this Machiavellian purpose of identifying the wrong thinkers. Uh, you know, the, the handful of people who still have their critical faculties intact and, and also something else intact down below and are willing to take a stand because they know that this is all theater. Well, those people now are very easy to pick out and, and separate from the herd, and then the herd wants to trample them. That's what herds do. And I don't think this is accidental. I think it's very much by design. Uh, if it were not the case uh, right now, the diapering would be dialed back because we know uh, the World Health Organization, the science, right, uh, released a big report a couple of weeks back that said that these uh, these these disposable face diapers and, and certainly the filthy bandana, and that's why I use that word because that's what they are, are medically useless. They serve no medical purpose uh, in terms of either preventing you from getting the Rona or from giving it if you have it. It is theater. It is performance art. It is training designed to get everybody to bend knee to this outrageous sickness psychosis that's spreading across the country. 
So let me ask you this, Eric, because I know you, of all my friends, are probably keeping the closest eye on where this seems to be leading. Um, I'm hearing rumblings about mandatory vaccinations. What's the end game, in your opinion? Where is this taking us? Well, they're more than just rumblings. Uh, Last week, the Virginia Gesundheitsführer, the guy who's in charge of the Virginia Department of, of Public Health, publicly said that if it's in his power, and it probably will be, he will require every single person in the state of Virginia, my state, to submit to this vaccine. And it makes you wonder, why are they pressuring this so much? What is this all about, given what we know about the threat of this supposed virus to normally healthy people? And I don't think it's any longer paranoid to entertain scenarios such as that the thing might have some way of tracking people. Uh, That is the end goal, perhaps. Uh, or the even more sinister and ominous possibility that the virus, uh, that the vaccine for the virus is actually meant to get people sick in some way. I don't know. And I say these things only because of what's going on right now. If you had, if you had said six months, eight months ago that you'd see virtually every person in the country wearing a face diaper, you would have been uh, laughed at as delusional, as paranoid. But look what's going on around us. So I take nothing off the table anymore. Well, it's it's encouraging, but I'll tell you, there there's a lot of pushback um, against the pushback. For instance, uh, in my home state of Utah, in southern Utah, there are parents who have have just been outraged over the mask requirements of their kids at school, mm-hmm. and and so they they were to have an event uh, yesterday. Actually, it was supposed to be No Mask Monday, and they were encouraging mm-hmm. kids come to school without masks. What are they going to do? They're going to suspend everybody, and uh, the the pushback against that. Of course, is what the media has seized on. Well, now, this is just parents that are going out and taking their frustrations out on teachers and administrators and so mm-hmm. forth. These poor kids, they don't want to be part of this protest. But, I, I mean, give me your best take on, short of taking your kid out of the system, what, what else can a person do? I mean, did Rosa Parks take her arguments to the governor because uh, she was what? being forced to give up her seat? Well, at some point, you have to stand fast. And as we've talked about repeatedly in the past, right now we're still at the point where taking a stand does not involve life or death consequences. But it might if we're not willing to take a stand right now and risk you know, being suspended, being denied entry to a store, even being fired from your job. You can always get another job. Uh, but this business of bending knee to this medical tyranny is extraordinarily dangerous, in my opinion, and it's something that absolutely must be pushed back against with every method and means at our disposal. I think I, I agree with you completely, and I think the hardest thing to, to get people past the hump, if you will, to get them over is the idea that, yes, you may have to suffer a little bit for standing up for your mm-hmm. rights. But that's always been true. Hasn't, hasn't that been the case historically? Well, of course it's been true, and people also need to stop and step back and consider, are they not suffering already? They're being humiliated and degraded by being compelled to put on that face diaper, by being told they can't touch other people, they can't even be near other people, that they're not allowed to sit next to somebody at a church, that they're not allowed to go to church, that they're not allowed to sit down and have a meal. All of these diminishments that they've endured and suffered. So they are already hurting. And, you know, then the next thing is they're going to be compelled to stick out their arm and let these Dr. Mengele's inject them with God only knows what, with God only knows what consequences. So it's not as though putting on that diaper means everything will be fine and you can just go about your life. This stuff is going to lead to worse stuff, and that's why it is so imperative to put a stop to it. You know, and Eric, I saw on your website, uh, you know, you call them face diapers, and some people may say, hey, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a derogatory thing. You posted a video of a person showing literally 
how to take an adult diaper Mm -hmm. and turn it into a face mask. Right. That's how hysterica it's become. But I use the term because it's filthy both in an actual medical sense uh, as well as in a psychological sense. It is disgusting and dirty to keep a nasty old rag, and that's what people are doing, a bandana around your face where it collects your spit and your breath, and to rebreathe that, that is, that's extraordinarily unhygienic. It's medically disgusting, but it's also psychologically disgusting because of the premise behind it, that you're a, a, a separating plague carrier, and you have to wear this thing or else you're going to kill everybody in sight. Uh, it's a loathsome thing from so many facets, and yet so many people can't see it because of the juggernaut of fear porn propaganda that's been shoved down their throats now for the past six months. Yeah, and, and the accusations, by the way, it's, it's, you're not engaging in hyperbole when you talk about people saying, you're a murderer if you don't wear the mask, mm-hmm. or, or if you question you know, the face shield at the convenience store. Mm-hmm. I noticed uh, in, in some uh, chapels where I live, they, they've now erected a shield, a plastic shield in front of the pulpit, so the person speaking mm-hmm. uh, apparently won't uh, you know, pose as big a risk to the, the congregants. At some point in the future, this will be looked back upon uh, and studied by historians as well as psychologists and perhaps considered and go down in history as the greatest single example of mass hysteria, mass panic, deliberately fomented by the government, by the media, and uh, by politicians. And by the way, that's what this, I think, comes down to now at this point. It is a political thing. It is designed to keep people terrified. It is designed to assure that for all of his faults, the orange man is not reelected so that we get Biden and Kamala, the Ugandan giant, uh, in, their, in his place. Wow. Well, Eric, uh, I know you have a, a lot of great material on your website. We've got to go to break here in about 30 seconds. Sure. Take, take 30 quick seconds. Tell us about uh, some of the things that you cover on epautos.com. Well, before sickness psychosis descended, I was primarily covering uh, the new car business, including writing car reviews and uh, letting people know what was going on with regard to uh, technical developments, regulatory developments, uh, laws that might affect them in terms of uh, their ability to get around and move electric cars. Uh, also classic cars, which I've always had a great affection for, and motorcycles, and practically any other topic under the sun, including just general libertarian philosophy. Yep, and it's that underlying current of freedom that drew me in and keeps me coming back to your site on a regular basis. We'll take a very quick break. We've got a couple of bills to pay. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I love to have you on the show because I think you are one of the, the few remaining rational voices out there and, and one of the few wrong thinkers who's willing to still <laughs> say it as it is. Talk to me about your perceptions. Uh, the election draws closer. The, the country, in the meantime, does not seem to be pulling itself together in any sense. No. Uh, the DNC was last week. RNC is taking place this week. What are your thoughts on the passing scene? Well, among other things, you can really reduce this presidential election to a single issue, and it really goes back to the diapering thing. Uh, Joe and Kamala have promised publicly that if they are elected, then uh, face diapering will become a national federal mandate. 
Uh, whereas while the orange man hasn't actually said anything about it, the fact that he repeatedly shows himself in public undiapered, I think, is strong a strong indication that he is not inclined in that direction. So bottom line, that's one of the main reasons that I'm going to pull the, pull the, pull the, uh, the lever for the orange man, um, because I believe that this is the defining issue of our times, and if sanity is not restored, psychosis will become the defining aspect of American society henceforth. Wow. Well, um, you know, I, I'm looking at uh, the, the different areas. Kenosha, Wisconsin, I guess, is the latest to experience a, a spate of violence after a police mm-hmm. shot a guy who happened to be black. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you see this ramping up as the election gets closer? Certainly. Uh, it doesn't it redound to the benefit of the opposition to create as much chaos and havoc as possible. And it's of a piece, isn't it, with this sickness psychosis. These these people, meaning the, the jackal media, as I like to call them, because that's what they are, have been deliberately and dishonestly fomenting race hatred, just as they have been fomenting hatred of anybody who questions the narrative about the Wu flu, uh, so that they can turn blacks against whites, just as they can turn the diapered against the undiapered. And who benefits from that? It's certainly not the people who are clutching at each other's throats Uh, It's the media jackals, and it's the politicians who thrive on fear. It is the thing that gives them life. Well, and so let's talk about uh, practical ways we can uh, inoculate ourselves against that fear. Well, simply by being reasonable and refusing to question your own sanity and doing your very utmost. Now, I understand there are occasions when sometimes you have to be tactical rather than strategic, but doing your utmost to not participate in the legitimization of this sickness psychosis as by putting on that diaper. Don't go shopping at stores that will not let you in or will not honor your medical exemption for the diapering. Find a way around it. Uh, You and I have talked before about communities of faith, I get, a, I get a lot of uh, mail from people who, who tell me about their church and how their church won't let them worship normally anymore, and I respond to that, well, uh, your backyard can be a church. Your living room can be a church. Get together with people who are like-minded and have your service outside of the confines of these control regimes, and that sort of thing scales across the board, and those are the things that I think we have to do in order to defeat this. No, I, I agree, and it's I, I think we can take uh, some courage from the people around us who have the courage to stand. Um, part of it, too, though, is is I think you have to have a willingness to, to to be willing to be misunderstood or misrepresented or have people call you names or otherwise attack you and your reputation. You've got to be willing to part company with polite society at some point if you're going to maintain those things that are most dear to you. Of course. Uh, it's important to stand up for principles, and I don't mean be confrontational. I mean stand up for your principles. Uh, don't allow yourself to be cowed by social pressure. Be polite. Be nice to people, but don't accept their guilt. Don't let their fear impose obligations on you. The fact that they have become deranged and the fact that they have let themselves be put into a state of mental paralysis by fear porn doesn't impose an obligation on you to pat them on the head and tell them it's okay and put on your diaper and pretend that you're similarly afflicted. By the way, I I totally approve of your use of the term fear porn because it it really does, uh, it appeals to our baser instincts, you know, when, when we are subjected to it. Give me your thoughts on how a person can wean themselves off their, their fear porn addiction. Because a lot of people 
feel like they have to have a daily fix or they're not going to know what's going on. Well, sure. And a lot of this involves deconstruction. It's obvious to you and I and other people who, for example, will ask the question when you hear a report on the major media about the 5,000 cases that have just been identified, and we'll ask the question, well, okay, but how many people have died? Unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that logical habit of thought, but I would recommend people who are worried about the Wu flu to start looking into the facts for themselves. In fact, go to the government official websites, look up the WHO, uh, look up CDC and all of these other sources and see what the facts are and then base your decision accordingly. Read the box that those disposable face diapers come in where it says right on the box, that this thing will not protect you from the virus, coronavirus or any other virus, because it simply can't filter out viruses which are too small for that material. Think about the fact that putting some bandana around your face isn't going to protect you from anything, and so on and so on. Just use your noggin rather than your heart, and don't give in to terror. What are your thoughts about uh, unplugging from the matrix as opposed to, uh, to staying plugged in you know, everywhere you go with that phone in hand? Well, there's two things there, I think. I think one is decoupling yourself from the peddlers of fear porn, who, by the way, at some point, I hope will be indicted and tried for what they've done. After World War War II, uh, there was a guy named Julius Streicher who published something called Der Sturmer, which was a fear porn uh, rag devoted to characterizing the Jews as Satan incarnate and and how they were destroying the German people and fomenting race hatred against the Jews. Well, Streicher was hanged for his war crimes. I think these, these people in the media and the people in the government who have been maliciously and deliberately whipping up hysteria about this woo flu and who have been fomenting violence toward people who don't buy in, they deserve a similar fate, in my opinion. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is to make yourself as prepared as possible for what may be coming. I'm practicing this myself. I've gotten back into having chickens and ducks. Um, I'm making provisions for being self-sustaining with regard to my food, my water, my heat, and so on, just in case things get really ugly, even uglier than they are right now, a couple of months from now after the next election. And I think this is very sensible from the standpoint of there's an awful lot of stuff out there that you and I really don't have control over. And, and coincidentally, that's that seems to be the stuff that keeps me awake at night. What can I do about this? And learning to discern between what I have control over versus what I don't. Um, I think that's one of those big steps towards finding peace. Yes. And then, you know, like you say, taking those common sense steps to just mitigate the risks, you know, in, in the things where you have influence or where you have control. And stop sweating the stuff that you don't. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've decided to get myself a greenhouse. I've already got a garden going. And it gives me peace not only to be involved in the planting and the growing and all of that, but to know that I have got my food source right here in my backyard. And I'm not going to have to put on a diaper to go into my greenhouse or get vaccinated in order to get tomatoes off of my vines. Right. Right. And, and of course, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that I like to do, too, that uh, maybe this won't resonate with everybody. Um, I find that I, I'm a lot less uh, mopey, a lot less down or concerned about myself if I'm actively looking for someone around me who could use a boost. And I know that sounds feel yes. good, but if, if I can do something that in some small way lifts another person, I can't help but feel better. Oh, of course. Absolutely. And that is why I go out of my way when I'm out shopping undiapered and I see another person who's brave enough to do it. I go up to them with a smile, which they can see because I'm not wearing a diaper. 
and I offer words of encouragement and commiseration. And the charge I get out of that is really hard for me to put into words, and I think the other people feel the same way. And that sort of thing is so vital right now. It's, it's like water in the desert when you're, when you're dying of thirst. Here, here. Eric, it is great, as always, to visit with you. Tell everybody where they can find your website. Sure. It's epautos.com. And um, you know, I'm fairly, fairly much all over the Internet, unless, unless the, the Gurgle God has used its algorithm to, 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 to obscure me again. But I'm fairly easy to find. All right, Eric, I look forward to our conversation next week, same time. Ditto, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you could be a part of this audience. In fact, can I take just a moment here and invite you to take one step further from what you've already done by simply listening to this program? And that is, I would like to invite you to become a wrong thinker. Now, I'm going to be talking about this in some detail in the next hour with uh, Gary Welch. He'll be joining me. But um, it is it is such a good thing to know, first of all, that there are other people out there who think or who at least feel the same way that you do and question the narrative and don't want to be told you must think this, you must believe this, you cannot say that. It's It's great to know you're not alone. Because right now there are a ton of folks, uh, myself included sometimes, who feel pretty isolated. We feel like, am I really, the, am I the only one who feels this way? Am I the only oddball who's trying to swim upstream against the, the tide of, of public opinion? And, uh, and, and I, of course, you know, there are people who think like you do. You'll hear it in my guests. You'll, you'll hear it in the different articles that I share. Hopefully in my own commentaries, you're, you're going to get the sense that, no. You may be an odd duck, but you're the right kind of odd duck. And even if others think you're a kook, you know, there's just there's always that possibility that sometimes the kooks get it right. <laughs> so take comfort in that. But I would invite you go to my website, the dot com. And if you just scroll through, look at the menu. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff to find there. Resources for wrong thinkers, which will will help you in your own quest for clarity. But I'd like to invite you to consider becoming a wrong thinker. And there are some very specific uh, incentives that we're offering for those who want to help support this show. You can become a patron. You can subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend about it. It's, it's the little things like this. Help us get the message of personal liberty, freedom of conscience, the free market, and private property rights. Help us, help us get this message out at a time when it really counts. All right. Like I say, there's more coming up on this in the second hour of today's show. Let's talk for a moment about ride sharing and the absurdity of protecting workers out of a job. You've heard me talk about AB5 in California, law which was passed earlier this year, or at least which went into effect earlier this year. And apparently uh, uh, last week I told you that Uber and Lyft were going to uh, they were going to suspend their operations in California simply because it was no longer tenable for them to be doing business, or at least uh, for their, their drivers to do business, because under AB5, these companies would have had to reclassify their drivers as employees rather than as independent contractors. And both of the companies had said, well, we'll just shut down operations in the state rather than obey the law. 
Well, apparently they got a temporary reprieve. They've been walked back from the gallows, at least according to this article by Raymond Niles from the American Institute for Economic Research. A California appeals court issued a temporary restraining order barring enforcement of California law AB5. Now, he says, why were Lyft and Uber willing to shut down? I mean, is this a, just are they just being petulant? I'm going to take my ball and go home. No, it's much more simple than that. It's dollars and cents. It's because they were being forced to classify their drivers as employees and then forced to incur huge new expenses on behalf of each one of those drivers in order to pay for mandatory new benefits. And they must incur these expenses on their driver's behalf whether or not those drivers want those benefits given the cost. One study by Barclays estimates that for a typical part-time driver working 20 hours a week and earning $15,600 per year in fares, Lyft or Uber would have to incur incur $3,625 in additional costs per driver if they become an employee. And it's not the market that's demanding this. That is purely government regulation saying, you have to do this or else. Now, Raymond C. Niles says, we're familiar with most of these mandatory employee benefits and protections. They include things like Social Security retirement benefits, Medicare, federal and state unemployment, mandatory training costs, and state-mandated workers' compensation insurance. But the cost to Lyft and Uber, he says, is only half the issue. The other half is that the drivers, if they become employees, also have to pay their share for some of these benefits. Think about this. This includes their half of the misnamed Social Security contribution it's not a contribution because it's mandatory you pay it or else currently the rate of six is 6.2 percent of income paid by the employer and 6.2 percent paid by the employee for a total outlay of 12.4 percent by the way medicare works the same way employer and employee each pay 1.45 percent for a total of 2.9 percent so that adds up to another 1193 dollars that the newly declared employee has to pay out of his or her earnings the total hit to employer and employee alike is $4,818. That's nearly 31% in additional costs that have to be jointly paid by employer and employee for benefits they may not want given the cost. So instead of Uber and Lyft facilitating the payment of $15,600 in fares to a typical part-time driver, it will now cost Uber and Lyft $19,225 to deliver take-home pay to the driver of only $14,407. And by the way, that's before income taxes. Do you see the problem? That's a costly pay wedge and a huge financial hit to be paid by both the companies and their drivers. Depending on whose perspective, Uber and Lyft are facing a huge new tax on the money they pay their drivers, and the drivers are simultaneously facing a huge reduction in their take-home pay. Boy, I bet they're feeling appreciative of how protected they are, you know, under those circumstances. So the issue is whether Uber and Lyft or its drivers would have chosen any of these so-called benefits if they were given the choice. And Raymond Niles says, we know we already know the answer to this question. The fact that Uber and Lyft originally chose to pay their drivers as independent contractors rather than as employees means that the value of these benefits to their drivers is less than the cost. If these benefits were worth more to the drivers than their cost, then it would have been in Lyft and Uber's interest to voluntarily offer these costly benefits as a way of competing for drivers. 
He says there's an elephant in the room when governments intervene in the voluntary relationships of market participants. And the elephant in the room is that such interventions make both parties worse off because it imposes an outcome on them that neither would have voluntarily chosen. In this case, employer and driver are choosing to interact in a certain way, but the federal government and the state of California have intervened, imposing expensive, quote, benefits on both parties that are worth less than their cost to them. So this Uber-Lyft saga is just a very highly public version of a saga that happens every single time government mandates worker or consumer protections. Reason being, all of these protections are costly, and that cost is borne by both parties. Part of the cost is borne by the employer or business. The other is borne by the employee or customer. And because of the burden of these additional costs, both parties reduce their trade with each other. Economists call this lost economic activity deadweight loss. So deadweight loss is the value of the loss of the lost gains rather to both parties from the reduced volume of their interactions due to the extra costs imposed by regulation. And today we're seeing a case of extreme deadweight loss as the unchosen cost is so great that Uber and Lyft, at least for now, might reduce their transactions in the state to zero. So Raymond C. Niles says a question to ask is whether any regulation is desirable if both parties bear costs and benefits of their actions and are free to transact with each other. Nobel Prize winning economist Ronald Coase indirectly raised this question in two famous papers, which established what became known as Coase's theorem. It said that two parties will voluntarily reach a mutually optimal trading arrangement up to the point where there are transaction costs. And I guess the gist of it is this. Government regulation unnecessarily pushes up transaction costs. And in this case, by mandating unwanted benefits, those transaction costs are so high that Uber and Lyft are choosing not to transact at all in California. Which, as you can imagine, is a huge loss for Uber, Lyft, its drivers, and most importantly, for their thousands of customers. By the way, there are some terrific links within this article that are definitely worth following if you want to get your mind around this subject in, in a you know more thorough fashion. You can check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and, and see for yourself. I strongly encourage, you know, check out the show notes, share them on social media, pass these articles around and help get this knowledge out there to the folks who can benefit from it. Our show is brought to you in part today by firesteel.com. I am uh, I'm so impressed with their fire starting products and you know I can sit here and talk about it and I do, but nothing will will show you more quickly what they are all about than by going to their website which is very simply firesteel.com. You can check out videos, you can see a complete line of their products. You can learn the exp- explanation behind why their fire starters are some of the very best fire starters you can get your hands on. And I think you'll find as you look around what you are getting in return for the cost. And, and these are these are not the cheapest fire starters out there, but they are definitely the best that you can get. And having said that, they are not prohibitively expensive. They're a very good investment in your preparedness for unforeseen circumstances, disasters, and the like. That's firesteel.com. Mention my name at checkout, Brian with a Y. They'll knock 10% off your purchase. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome back to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. Got a couple of great things to share with you in this segment. Wanting want to start off with a commentary from my friend Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. I, I love this man because he is just one of the most tireless advocates of liberty. And I, I mean, really, a principled and very, very positive voice for why freedom matters. And, and, and he has so many wonderful stories from having traveled the world, meeting with people in many, many different countries, who have some of whom have really suffered under legit despotism. And that that yearning for freedom is just it's a universal thing that is found in every culture, in every society. And the people who have really had to pay a dear price for it, man, what a story they have to tell. And and a few people have related their stories as well as Lawrence W. Reed. When I saw the headline, Making Marks Proud, Today's Campus Lun- Lunacy, it, it really struck home because uh, today my uh, my son, my oldest boy, is headed back to school. Um, he's uh, attending university, and he's a solid kid. I mean, he is a wonderful young man with a good head on his shoulders, but I worry about him every time he has to venture back onto a college campus I worry about him, not that uh, he's going to be led astray. I just worry because there is a lot of lunacy going on on the nation's college campuses. They are the hotbeds of um, so-called right think. (laughs) They are. This is where wokeness, uh, you know, really found the fertile soil in which it could could sink its nasty roots. And it really comes back to uh, it's it's, you know, Marxism translated from economics and politics into culture. Cultural Marxism, and there, there are a few places where you are more likely to encounter a politically correct atmosphere than on a college campus. Larry Reed says, earlier this summer, a survey posted on Twitter posed this question. If you were dropped 2,000 years back in time with nothing but the knowledge you have now, what would you do? Well, a man named Timothy Snedeker replied as follows. Easy. I would find and assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. Theologically speaking, it would be really important to get him before his calling and ministry begins, so that gives me roughly a decade to make it to Palestine, locate the man, and make my move. Wow. Larry Reed says, shocking, isn't it? It should be to any decent person, regardless of faith. Now you're wondering, who is this Snedeker guy? A prison inmate? A mental patient? A Satan worshiper? Actually, he's a teaching assistant at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, pursuing his doctorate in religious studies. Now, if he has suggested the murder of Muhammad or Martin Luther King, you can bet he would be looking for work, and none of us would care if he ever found any. But he's ensconced at progressive UC Santa Barbara, where a socialist religion teacher can advocate killing the most perfect man who ever lived and still likely land tenure. Larry Reed says it wouldn't surprise me if some of this character's students will soon be burning down businesses and police precincts, claiming simultaneously that certain lives matter, but not all. Ideas have consequences. If, is this just an isolated example of extremism, untypical of academia today? Larry Reed says, I wish it were. The violent rhetoric, the woke lunacy, the madness of political correctness, the attempts to shut down dissenting views, the safe space, snowflake nonsense. All of it is coming from the socialist left. Have you ever heard of moderates, conservatives, or libertarians trying to silence a speaker, burn down a building, or deface a monument? Jonathan Turley, prominent George Washington University law professor, recently lamented the leftist bullying on campuses. 
He said, I wish I could say that my view, pro-free speech, remains strongly implanted in our higher educational institutions. However, you are more likely to find public supporters for restricting free speech than you are to find defenders of free speech, free speech principles on many campuses, end quote. Now, Larry Reed says one man who undoubtedly would be proud and flattered by such fringe lunacy is Karl Marx, the father of modern socialist theory. And he says, by modern, I mean recent. Socialism actually dates back to the first envious caveman who bashed in his neighbor's head to make off with his turkey leg. Today, Marx and Marxism are all the rage in broad swaths of American academia, favorably presented to more young minds than at any time since the man himself was buried in the corner of London's Highgate Cemetery in 1883. Just two years ago, historian Paul Kanger noted that Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh even hosted a bicentennial celebration of Marx's birth. Scholars praised him as if Marx's virulent racism, his noxious anti-Semitism, his hateful scorn for people of faith, his ignorance of how markets work, his militant endorsement of mayhem and murder, his poetic exultation of Lucifer, and his poppycock forecasts of future events were irrelevant matters hardly worth mentioning. Larry Reed says, I've interacted with tens of thousands of students, such as a professor or guest, as a professor or guest lecturer in many high schools, colleges, and universities. And he says, when I mention these important, distasteful aspects of Marx and his view of the world, the standard reaction goes something like this. My teachers never told us that. Wasn't Marx the guy who proved that capitalism was evil? No, Larry says, Marx didn't even come close to proving that. It was Marx himself who was evil, not capitalism. Which brings me to a book recommendation, a new one by the very Paul Kanger cited above, titled The Devil and Karl Marx. It explains the context which produces contemptible screwballs in the classroom like Timothy Snedeker. From critical race theory that's fast becoming mainstream in academia to the nihilistic anti-Americanism to virtual worship of the state, this one man who mistreated his own family and elevated hate to a mantra, Karl Marx is the fountainhead. Kanger writes, Marxism from the outset was a seriously perverse ideology that brooded in misery, wallowed in misery, and advanced itself in the name of misery, and ultimately produced misery. It's no surprise that anyone who has studied its roots sees among them numerous pernicious ideas and influences. End quote. Larry Reed says millions of American students today are stewed in Marxist ideas, and we are financing it. We're graduating legions of them who can tell you next to nothing about Adam Smith or Milton Friedman, but can quote Karl Marx chapter and verse. Now that should chill you to the bone. If you're worried about where this all might lead, if unchecked, consider the famous admonition of the English poet John Donne, therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Larry says if America ends up in the socialist dumpster so tragically common in history, we can kiss our freedoms and well-being goodbye. And then someday an honest historian will write of us, it wasn't a foreign power that did them in. The foe was right under their noses. They paid for their own destruction with their tax and tuition dollars, and they thought it was education. Wow, that stings. But it stings only because it's true. Again, you can find this in the show notes at the com show notes for August 25th. So I don't know if you feel this. I assume you probably do. If you're listening to this program, you are probably the kind of person who is attuned to that sense that uh, there is an undeniable sense of spiritual darkness across a lot of our land today. And some of this is a product of the reactions to coronavirus. 
Some of it is the product of many years of straying from foundational principles. The question that remains is, what can you and I do about this? Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, actually has some really relevant suggestions. He says, first, let me speak plainly. I'm not given to self-pity. Like all adults my age, I've experienced sadness and heartbreak, deaths, financial setbacks, disappointments, and I've wronged and hurt others, but never did I shake a fist at God, life, or fate and say, why me? Self-pity is not a part of the equation. So he says, don't mistake what I'm about to say as a self-indulgent sorrow. He says, during the past year, I've lived alone in my daughter's house in Virginia, acting as a caretaker while she and her family are living in Pennsylvania. He says, from September until March, I spent a great deal of time solitary as an anchorite, which was beneficial to my work. When I needed human company, I either telephoned friends or family or took myself off to the library, coffee shop, or church. Then came coronavirus and the quarantine. The library closed for four months, offering only curbside service for book borrowing. The coffee shop closed except for takeout. The church shut its doors for a while and even now operates at half capacity during services. He says, with my old life upended, I spent some of my days depressed. My spirit was beaten down by the state of my country and quarantine restrictions, and I was angry about our government, our governor's policies, which often appeared arbitrary and even unconstitutional. Now, he says, some normal- normalcy has uh, re- uh, returned, although with an element of incongruity that defies comprehension. I can enter the library as long as I'm wearing a mask, though patrons must wear bandanas or cloth masks like mine, whose effectiveness is non-existent. And he says, we followed these governmental directives to quell the spread of coronavirus, but at what cost? Now, he's not the only one who's struggling. He says, the signs of this dark time, this dark mood of our time are all around us. What can we do? Well, he says, we have the chance right now to lay plans for the future, to devise ways and means of boosting our spirits, and more importantly, helping family, friends, and neighbors avoid post-coronavirus depression. We can keep watch over them, let them know we're there for them if they want to talk, and most of all, show them that we love them. And we can bolster our own spirits. I think one of the best ways to do this is by serving other people. He says, someday we may remove our masks, but the shadows of COVID-19 will linger. But it's up to us to bring light into that darkness. This is The Brian Hyde Show.